Ah! Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's attacking me. What do you need for me? I thought that this haircut would change you, but you're still the same. Yep. It's, it turns out it wasn't the packaging, Jeremy. It's what's inside. Yep. Now he's carrying Damn. around his sweater. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. And uh, before we go any further, uh, I'm just going to need you guys to sign a few things for me. Insert email notification sound effect here. Now, if you could just skip right on over the fine print and sign at the bottom line, we can just get right back into the episode. Well, I don't want to keep our listeners waiting so yeah i think we'll just sign this right now agreed jeremy yeah let me just assure you it's really it's a standard boilerplate legally binding friendly agreement you know <laughs> just an agreement we're going to agree to yeah it'll be fine i just figured like before this podcast gets too successful we should just kind of get a few things on paper you know Simple, obvious things like I get full rights to the name and uh, I was thinking like 50% of future income, regardless of my effort level going forward. Yeah. Why don't we make it 60, Sean? Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 100% of zero is still zero. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I figured this was already all implied. So we all agree. Moving on. All right. Moving on. Signed. Sean's going to. Use just that audio. I know. <laughs> We're screwed in the court of law. <laughs> He's going to be in the podcast mansion alone. Or maybe he'll let us be like his driver and I'll be the maid or something. Yeah, there's going to be some trickle down effect. Don't you guys worry. Okay, cool. Well, I am co-host Jeremy. And since I'm going to need to make money off a different podcast now i've uh, become the producer of the hit music history podcast my echo my podcast and me the comprehensive and encyclopedic compendium of all things ink spots and sometimes the mills brothers wow congrats my dude that's a big position thank you that sounds time consuming though um yeah i got nothing but time though so it's good you're definitely not in this for the money <laughs> as as we've uh established already here <laughs> strictly for the love yeah if i don't get money out of it i might as well get time out of it right well congratulations jeremy <laughs> thank you <laughs> i am co-host peter cook That's, wow. That's my intro. <laughs> I thought we were just going to go right into the whole episode like that. Peter was just going to give us a, a comforting biography of this legendary band. And Real a nice slow tenor and voice. <laughs> and then I would, I'd repeat it back in the bass. Yeah. <laughs> we should structure the history of the Ink Spots as one of their songs. As, one, yeah. as all of their songs. <laughs> <laughs> As their one song. Well, you just nailed the intro, Peter, so we're on our way. We're finally talking the ink spots, huh? We are. I may or yeah. may not be breaking rules so that we can talk about the ink spots. I I think our listeners will be okay with the fact that the ink spots never released a proper LP as we would define them. All their stuff is compilations, correct? As far as we can tell, anyway, it's kind of hard with, with the ink spots since there's a billion versions of them. Yeah, it's deeply convoluted, but ultimately, 
the ink spots are more or less done recording things before the LP even was a thing. There's like a year or two a crossover, but LPs were just taking off and they were already like winding down at that point. Yeah, in the late 1940s. Yeah. But luckily, I've figured out that at least the Deca ones seem to at least be the actual ink spots. And that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> Are we going to even get into that? Oh, we're, we'll get into it. But first, I want to play you the actual ink spots. Well, they're just called the ink spots. But <laughs> I want to start us off with, it's funny to everyone but me. Have we mentioned what the album is that we're talking about today yet? Yeah, yeah we should probably. No, we did not mention what the name of the album is because there's no album. But they've called this compilation Time Out for Tears. Nice. Yeah, it fooled me into thinking it was an album because it was one of the earliest Ink Spots LPs put out there that didn't have volume one or volume two in its name. So I thought this might be the real deal, but it's not. (laughs) You tried. You gave it your best. I gave it my best, and it's funny to everyone but me. (laughs) Side A, track three. It's funny how you loved me. Then forgot so suddenly It's funny to everyone but me They told me this would happen Now they're laughing secretly It's funny everyone but me I should shrug my shoulders and say good riddance to a bad affair but how can I do what my head tells me to when my heart tells me how much I care it's so funny I still love you it's the joke of the century it's funny to everyone but me how could I make such a fool mistake they're laughing at me all over town Honey child, did you ever notice the delight that they all take in kicking a man that's down? Now I should shrug my shoulders and say... You heard at the top of that track the classic Ink Spots intro that Peter referenced. Just so everybody knows, that was Peter actually playing it on the guitar too. (laughs) Yeah. I exercised my chops for you. Yeah, he picked up the guitar and was like, he just did it. He picked up, yeah. <laughs> anyway, here's the say. ink spots. I'm stunned, <laughs> yeah. I'm a longtime fan of the ink spots intro. <laughs> I, yeah. think, I think it's one of the all-time great things in life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just hear a song, you're like, man, I could hear nothing but that song for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, and with the ink spots, you can hear a slight variation of that same song over and over throughout their discography. Yeah. You're not wrong. If only it was one song, but just slightly different. I never had to hear a new song. Never had to decide if another song was good. Just know this song rules, and I want to hear only this. Yeah, it's very comforting and extremely formulaic, as you guys have established established well 
that intro thing, they do it on at least half of their songs start with that. And it's sort of like a branding thing. Back, you know, when they would get played on the radio, you know, right away it's an Ink Spot song because it had that intro. So the Ink Spots were kind of like the DJ Khaled of their day. Precisely. Yeah. Exact same idea. (laughs) I remember before I had that context and a friend of mine had discovered the ink spots in like his grandparents record collection and would bring several ink spots comps over to my apartment at the time. This is in my early to mid twenties. And as Jeremy has said, we weren't necessarily our best selves (laughs) in these scenarios. (laughs) If, if, you know, I don't know if many people would think of the ink spots as, uh, Party music, party music, but it was for us because we got endless amusement out of the formula of the Ink Spots songs. You would party to the Ink Spots, Peter. I did (laughs) hard. I partied hard in my twenties to the Ink Spots. So this is very fond nostalgia for me. I'm glad we're doing this record. What about you, Sean? Are you glad? Yeah. I'm glad we're doing the Ink Spots. I've, I've always loved this band. I mean, this kind of old-timey music, when it's done right, as I've said before, it can be very soothing, very comforting. And Ink Spots rule. Untouchable vocal harmonies, too. Like, we've joked around about the the formula and everything, but, man, these guys could sing. That is highly true. And I don't know if you remember this, Sean, but you actually showed me the Ink Spots for the first time. Whoa. And we were on tour together, and everybody else in the band was trying to get me to like heavy, heavy metal. And you picked up an Ink Spots LP (laughs) from a thrift store while we were out, and you're like, check this out. And you put it on. (laughs) You want to hear something really fucking heavy? Yeah. <laughs> Turn that burzum shit off. Let's listen to the ink spots. Uh, that, you were clearly at a, a turning point there, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Peter uh, parties to the ink spots and Sean rocks out <laughs> to the ink spots. <laughs> Very cool, very cool. Well, let's just get into the history here because it's going to get a little convoluted and strange and confusing. So, Yeah, for a band with such a simple formula, they have a very complicated story. That's true. When you, uh, when you got the bag, when you hit that gold, you know, everybody's coming running for it. Don't I know? So the Ink Spots were formed in Indianapolis, Indiana. Indiana's original favorite sons that, you know, who replaces them? John Mellencamp, I guess. What else is from Indiana? Freddie Gibbs. Michael Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. Michael (laughs) Jackson. The Jacksons. So, yeah, they're from Indianapolis. They formed in 1936 when Bill Kenny joined Charlie Fuquay, Deke Watson, Jerry Daniels, and Orville Jones, who they'd all been kind of like singing in bands with like different members kind of together in different spots. But the Ink Spots is when these five all came together. And uh, history was made. A defining moment. A cultural shift. True. And they achieved that shift, as we mentioned, by being insanely formulaic. And they used this technique they called top and bottom, where every song would be the top voice, the tenor, who was Bill Kenny would sing the verse, the high-pitched voice, and then next the bass singer would just repeat those same lyrics just in a talking bass kind of way, 
and then the tenor would come back and sing it again. They harmonized with it, and they would just beat that formula to death and scored many, many hits with it. I think the formula is due for a comeback, honestly. I feel like most pop hits of today would be vastly improved if there was a baritone spoken word midsection. Yeah. Honestly, it reminded me of, uh, I think it was Nirvana who, like, really spelled out, like, the quiet, loud, quiet kind of thing in the early 90s, and it kind of reminded me of that sort of, it's like a really kind of abstract formula where you can, you know, fill in the dots with a lot of different things, but there's kind of this overarching structure that you just follow over and over. Yeah, Nirvana brought that to the mainstream by copying it from the Pixies. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure the Pixies weren't the first to do that as well. No, no, uh, Can Mushroom definitely follows that formula, and that's 1971, so... Yeah. I would say that the Ink Spots have a few songs that follow this formula that are their, you know, the best known, like... If I Didn't Care would be at, like the top, I would say. Yeah. And Set the World on Fire is probably a pretty well-known one as well. Yeah, and the song we just listened to followed it exactly. That's their thing. They did a thing and they did it well. <laughs> End of episode. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you said, do you, do you think the fact that they were able to execute a formula like that had something to do with like the time period that they were in or is it really just the same thing we're experiencing today only slightly different i mean there's artists that have tags like we said but no one has like the same guitar intro to every song like why did that work at one point well i think it worked in that time because everything was singles at that time as we mentioned they didn't really put out albums they didn't need a variety of songs on an album because people aren't listening to them that way. They're hearing them pop up every once in a while on the radio. So when it, you know, they pop up and it's that formula, it's not stale sounding for a while because there's other things happening in between. It's not everyone else on the radio is copying them. Yeah, sure. It's a little more repetitive and hilarious listening to just them on a comp over and over again. I think they worked better in a format where they were played between other artists. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And the average consumer probably had a small collection of singles and wasn't just, you know, buying 15 Ink Spot singles and playing them all in a row. Like it was a whole different approach. And, you know, just thinking about like when these guys were big nearly a hundred years ago at this point, there was just so much less music around there was fewer genres there was fewer bands so if you came up with a new winning formula it's like it's not like there was automatically a hundred other bands in that subgenre competing with you like you could kind of just forge your own path be like all right we found our new thing this is what we do now i think that's true of a lot of bands up until the late 60s even a lot of the 60s like garage bands if you listen to an album of theirs it, it can be kind of repetitive you listen to like question mark and the mysterians or you know you get that you hear 96 tears oh that's great well here's 10 more songs just like it oh sure yeah i mean you can feel the remnants of that music industry kind of direction for a long time you know an artist is a one-hit wonder and then the label is like okay we need basically that song again as often as possible and if it doesn't work you're gone yeah so that was That's where it all comes from. And just to put like a time frame on it, they're kind of at their peak in 39 to 43, maybe, I would say. Right in the war years. Yeah. Well, that comes into play because Charlie Fuquay was drafted into the army in 1943, which just kind of sets this like chain of dominoes into motion where just everything gets confusing from here. So hang on tight (laughs) because 
The very next year, Orville Jones, who's doing those talking bass parts and that real low harmony, he ends up passing away after collapsing on stage in 1944. He suffered a brain hemorrhage and passed away very unexpectedly, very young. From there, there was kind of a flurry of changes. Bill Kenny, the tenor, kind of head singer, his twin brother joins, Herb, and then the driver of their like vehicle, like the guy driving them around, Adriel McDonald, joins in and becomes the new bass voice. So they're kind of going through changes, and there's a little bit of power struggle, and Deke Watson, another original member, ends up stepping out. He just him and Bill Kenny were butting heads, and Bill Kenny decides to just buy him out of his share. And then Deke goes on to start a band called the Ink Spots. <laughs> and Bill's like, no, you can't do that. So they change their name to the Brown Dots after Bill Kenny sues him. And in 1952, Chuck Fuquay is he comes back before then, but leaves in 1952 and does the exact same thing, goes and starts a band called The Ink Spots. Just what we need. Multiple Ink Spots doing the formula. Yeah. And, and most of these other Ink Spots released singles and then had compilations come out later. So the bins are flooded with many variations on The Ink Spots of varying quality and uh, varying source material well uh i'll dig a little deeper into that when we come back but i want to play another song before things just keep going down the confusing rail and this next song i want to play is no orchids for my lady you may notice all these songs are like sad songs as well that's i would say one kind of part of their formula all right let's hear that sadness no Orchids for My Lady, side A, track five. No orchids for my lady. No sparkle in the wine. Other lips have taught my lady to cast aside this love of mine. So there's no rapture in our meeting. Says when we part, the orchids I gave my lovely lady were crushed on someone else's heart. For my lady The fact is There ain't even no sparkle In that wine You know It must be that Someone else's lips Have taught my lady to cast aside and forget all about this love of mine. So there's no rapture in our meeting. Oh yeah, that was definitely a different person on the spoken word 
bass middle section or the verse. <laughs> that was definitely not Orville Hoppy Jones because we looked it up and the first cut we played was from 1939 and this one is from 1949, was it, Jeremy? Correct. That's a decade later. You can kind of tell the quality is a little bit cleaner as well. Yeah. But yeah, that that bass voice being totally different is a giveaway. But you can also hear Bill Kenny's voice sounds a little different at this point. Yeah, 10 years will do that. So true. It's funny they end up on these comps <laughs> together so far apart. <laughs> Now, what year did this comp come out? This came out in 1956, which would have been two years after they officially broke up. That's kind of interesting, too, because if you think about what was happening in like rock and roll in 1956, that was kind of one of the big years where it really broke into the mainstream. That's like Elvis's first LP, major releases from Lil Richard and folks like that. And the Ink Spots are kind of like, had an important influence on those artists. So it's kind of like almost like an oldies comp coming out at a time when the the next generation is taking over. Interesting. I like that perspective, Sean. Yeah. It's it's easy to not think of the ink spots as an influence on rock and roll because the vocal harmony thing is something that dropped off of the rock format a long time ago, but Groups like this were huge influence on early rock and roll, especially stuff that's more in like the doo-wop leaning. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and it, it says on the back of this record, there's uh, an explanation of the ink spots and their origins, and it describes them as a jive band, which I'm guessing is like a more energetic kind of doo-wop thing. Yeah, well, I think when they started out, before they developed their formula, that was more what they were considered. Yeah. So to get back to these lawsuits, obviously a couple members of the band go out and try and start bands called the Ink Spots, but this starts to catch on where uh, people totally unrelated or that, you know, maybe sang with them once as like a fill-in are all going out and creating bands called the Ink Spots. So it lands before a judge in 1955 who rules that they did not incorporate, so their structure is that of a partnership, and that when Orville Hoppy Jones passed away in 1944, that's technically when he says their partnership dissolved and essentially was ruling that the ink spots were now just public domain as far as a name goes. I have a feeling that judge was really sick of having ink spots cases coming before him every few weeks. <laughs> it was like, anyone can be in the ink spots. I'm sick of it. Yeah, that's canon. That seems to be what happened. Yeah, and it just caused a tidal wave of bands going out performing as the ink spots. I had seen online that in like the 1960s at the peak, uh, historian Bill Proctor estimated there were at least 40 different active groups claiming the name the Ink Spots. Wow. Could follow them around like the dead, see them every week. Well, you don't have to follow them anywhere. Yeah, you There's probably just... a different one coming to your town every <laughs> <Yeah>. week. <laughs> so... It was actually in 1967, there was another court ruling where a judge declared that there were just so many Ink Spots bands out there that uh, he just couldn't let there be a claim. And that kind of really cemented it as like, well, anyone can just be the Ink Spots. So if you go out looking for Ink Spots records, there's tons of albums out there that have nothing to do with the five guys originally in the ink spots. Sometimes they use even like their pictures of the actual ink spots on the album. They'll do like songs that they did, but re-recorded with different people. They'll just do totally new material that has nothing to do with the actual ink spots. There's multiple versions of like volume two, a compilation they put out that, 
There is one that is the actual ink spots, and then there's multiples that are these like knockoff ink spot bands. Uh, also named Volume Two. So I learned this all the hard way when I first just got into this band. Was like, oh, ink spots. I've seen them around. I'll pick up some records, have some some nice, pleasant music to have around, and then suddenly it just wasn't all the same. And some of it was kind of bad. I was very confused as to <laughs> what was going on here. Yeah, if you like your artists confusing and frustrating, look no further than the ink spots. Or possibly the Smashing Pumpkins. (laughs) (laughs) I'd say it adds a nice layer to your your crate digging. You you really got to know some stuff about this band to actually get this band if you want them. Yeah, Yeah, if you meet an ink spots head in a record store, stay there, learn something. If you guys really yeah. want to party, this is the Ink Spots compilation for you. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I will give out as a special little nugget of advice, Decca actually owns the rights to the actual Ink Spots. So if you find comps that are from Decca, it's most likely the actual Ink Spots. And if it's from anything other than Decca, there's a good chance it's not the real ink spots yeah if it's from daca records <laughs> or doka or doka <laughs> duka dika and those are all the record labels all right <laughs> yeah so i i did go down a little bit of a rabbit hole too when i was like this is insane these like all these imitator bands but this is a thing in music history i found out I found out Steppenwolf and Fleetwood Mac both had pretty famously imitator bands out there pretending to be them in their heyday. The Drifters, the Coasters had multiple imitator bands out there using their names. The Zombies famously, after they broke up, had multiple bands continue on as the Zombies pretending to be them including one that featured two members that would later become ZZ Top. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Electric Prunes have a record that's basically just a David Axelrod record that has no original Electric Prunes on it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wild to me. And it's kind of legal in a lot of cases. I, if they don't copyright things properly or... There's some confusion about the rights. People can just jump in on these things. So I did find there are 35 states that have signed on to an agreement called Truth in Music Advertising that they're trying to make this harder to do. It's a bill designed to make it harder to create imitator bands or use band names that you don't rightfully own. Uh, but it has not yet been federally adopted, so it's you can still just, I don't know, be Nirvana if you want. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, there's bands like L.A. Guns and Cro-Mags that have had multiple bands out there touring under that name at a time. Yeah, it's it's wild how often it happens. Yeah, and I I feel like I'd heard about instances of it, but it never like clicked in my mind until reading about the ink spots that this is like a thing in music that just happens over and over and over through history well did we want to play another song yeah i guess we could play another song let's play forgetting you also known as that's just my way of forgetting you that first part's in parentheses so you can skip it if you want peter or i can read it if you want it's up to you peter Wow, you're putting this all on me. (laughs) Uh, I'm fine with just forgetting you. Fine, Peter. Wow. (laughs) This is loaded. (sighs) I walked you right into that one. You did. (laughs) I, I fell for it. All right, side B, track one, forgetting you. See me dancing in 
from cabaret That's just my way of forgetting you Where you were the one There's a new one each day That's just my way of forgetting you If I gave myself the time to think about you I'd go mad to think that I'm without you Each night now I pray that I may find a way find a way of forgetting you if i gave myself the time to do nothing else but sit around and think only of you honey child you know what would happen i'd go mad to think i'd have to live my whole life without you Mm-mm-mm. Each night now I pray that I may find a way. Find Something about those chimes they have in there that just give it this kind of ethereal, almost surreal quality to it. Or maybe kind of like a, a bit of a lullaby, just adding to the comfort of the whole vibe. Yeah, I could also see it being used as an unsettlingly tranquil sounding piece in a horror film. Oh yeah. Do you guys yeah, know the big uh, cultural moment when a lot of newer people got into this band over the past few years, the past like 10 years, I would say when Megadeth sampled them in the late eighties. That's not what I was thinking of. No, I wouldn't have expected you to be thinking of Megadeth, but I, that did happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, Megadeth primed the world for the Fallout video game series. And the ink spots were a big part of the soundtrack. And when that came out, suddenly there was people coming into the record store being like, there's this this song. It kind of starts like, dun, 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 dun. Do you know who that is? It's on oh this my. video game. <laughs> wow, it worked. Yeah. Like 80 years later, the intro <laughs> exactly. works still. They knew what they were doing. <sighs> It was not a broken formula. Yeah. I liked that last song because it's a little different. There's no guitar. There isn't that intro, if you notice, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Though, if you but listen... But they're still, they're still trying to like copy the elements of their intro that work. Like, it's got to be kind of simple, kind of jaunty, and catchy. Like, if we can just get another intro, for the love of God. Yeah, the piano actually does play, like, the the same chord turnaround thing there later in the song <laughs> so it's still in there it just wasn't at the very beginning and on a guitar and and from what i understand they did try to have other hit songs that weren't in the formula but every time they strayed outside it just did not work as well so back to the formula that's right yeah so i mean that's kind of where the story goes from there uh bill kenny who was involved in a lot of these lawsuits, kind of just stopped caring after a point, especially after the judge in 67 was like, yeah, there's too many Ink Spots bands, get over it. So he kind of just moves on, and he starts a successful solo career, uh, hosting a TV show, and then doing some songwriting for others. And he was unfortunately, though, seriously injured when his gas tank exploded in his car in 1969. Whoa. Yeah, he, it took a while for him to recover, though he did recover and continued doing music for a little while, um, but ultimately ended up passing in 1978, likely from complications of 
being in that uh, horrific accident. Yeah, and I don't know if we've really given people this context, but during the heyday of the Ink Spots in like the 40s, like we were talking about, they were one of the best-selling bands in America. Like these guys were millionaires in 1940s money at one point. Yeah, and they were like internationally known. It wasn't just America. They'd gone worldwide, True. which is I mean, that's a huge accomplishment back then when <laughs> communications aren't as uh you know, developed at that point. Yeah. I mean, and that's also why there's tons and tons of ink spots compilations in the bins, because at one point there was a market for it. There was a market for 40 different versions of this band. <laughs> the world just couldn't get enough of the ink spots. Yeah. And there was plenty to go around. <laughs> <laughs> and now there still is for you, dear listener. Go pick up your own ink spots comp. Well, Sean. Well, Jeremy. I've, uh, you know, made your job kind of difficult this week, haven't I? It was a little bit. I was challenged for a few minutes there. All right. What do you have for similar sounding albums? Hmm. If you can't find the ink spots. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If every record store you've tried has no ink spots records then maybe this will help. Or you just get frustrated. (laughs) Or you've bought every Ink Spots record, yeah. You've bought every one, you've heard it, and you're ready to move on, finally. Might I suggest The Dells, Oh What a Night, from 1959. The song actually came out the same year as this compilation, 1956, and then the LP a few years later, as often happened with these groups back then. But like I said, the Ink Spots were a huge inspiration to doo-wop groups including groups like the dells who we've talked about started in the more vocal group doo-wop fashion and went on to become one of the all-time great soul groups of the 60s and it's not the oh what a night that people are thinking of (laughs) yeah they had two different charting hits (laughs) with the song the original doo-wop version and the more modern update later on yeah but not the one that people are thinking of. <laughs> that has a year beyond yeah, when that came out. The one that says... The very first line. Yeah, 1963. <laughs> right, 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 not, right. The Four that's Seasons. That's not the Dells. Yeah, that's the Four Seasons. Love that record. We got to talk about that record on this pod at some point. Anyway, next recommendation. The Moon Glows with another 1959 doo LP. Look, it's The Moon Glows. Original copies are a little expensive, but they made a bunch of reissues in the 80s that are cheap. And Peter, why did I recommend the Moon Glows? <laughs> Is that featuring Harvey Fuqua? That's right. Nephew of original ink spot Charlie Fuqua. Yep, they pronounce it differently, but they are related. That's It does happen sometimes. And last recommendation, not... Entirely the same formula, but uh, a guy we've talked about recently who was steeped in the popular music of this time period. I'm recommending Leon Redbone's third album, Champagne Charlie, from 1978. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, yeah. He did some Ink Spots songs, I believe. I think so. I tried to figure out like. At one point, I was thinking, ooh, I'll do all records that feature Ink Spots covers, and then I kind of gave up on trying to figure that out. But uh, of Leon's early records that are easy to find, Champagne Charlie has a little bit more of a full band vibe and some more vocal harmonies. And to me, it has just a little bit more of a touch of the Ink Spots vocal group style than maybe some of the blues or other pop vocalists that he's normally covering or influenced by. And we just fairly recently did an episode on Leon Redbone, so if you're intrigued, go listen to that. True. Well, thank you, Sean, for those lovely recommendations. As always, I'd be remiss to not mention that the ink spots were in our poll for which albums we should do to start off our season this year, <laughs> and they did not win. <laughs> And I said, screw that. We're doing the ink spots anyways. 
This is my podcast. I'll do what I want. True. And Sean will get half the revenue at least. (laughs) (laughs) But that's okay. And that's okay with me. I guess I do have one more suggestion real quick. If you want something that's very accurate to this sound and time period, why not check out a compilation from the Mills Brothers, who were oh, right, basically right. like the most popular vocal group until the Ink Spots took their crown. So there's a lot of similarities. And uh, just like the Ink Spots, they were huge a long time ago. So there's a million compilations for basically nothing out there in the bins. And they were an immensely talented group as well. Yeah, insanely good singers. That's, I don't think we really focused on that enough over this episode. How good they all are at singing and harmonizing. It's, uh, I mean, that's what really caught my ear to begin with was, wow. Well, and I think that's why the formula worked over and over again. Yeah. Before we wrap up this episode, I did have a quick little installment of For the Record, where we correct misinformation stated on previous episodes. We set the record straight on things we've gotten wrong. On our George Benson White Rabbit episode, we said that his album Breezin is the best-selling jazz album of all time. And while it certainly is up there, and it rivals Miles Davis' Kind of Blue in the multiple millions of copies sold, neither of those albums come anywhere close to Nora Jones and her debut Come Away With Me from 2002, which has sold well over 10 million copies by some estimates over 20 million. Yeah. I think jazz heads just don't want to count that. I think you're right, but we're counting it. (laughs) Yeah. Fair. So set the record straight on that, but it is an incredible seller in the jazz field. (laughs) The reason that's a lot, 3 million to 5 million that it's estimated to have sold. That's, that's Big time sales for a jazz record. Yeah. So it was one of the best selling jazz albums of all time. I'm going to still say it's the best. I'm just going to repeat that misinformation. (laughs) I mean, the internet has it widely spread enough. (laughs) So join the party. Any final thoughts on the ink spots before we tell them what we're leaving them with today? No, I'm just going to tell them what we're leaving them with. Well, we should probably give some credit to uh, Andrew Hickey here. Oh, we should. He is, uh, for those of you who don't know, the host of a podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. Yeah, and it delivers exactly that. It just goes song by song from the top on episode one. And carries you through where rock music comes from and where it went. And he did a fantastic episode on the Ink Spots that was extremely helpful for parsing out some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's very detailed. Andrew Hickey definitely connects all the dots. (laughs) Ooh. Or the spots. Yeah. So highly recommend checking out that podcast. I think he's... He's only he hasn't even gotten to 200 songs as of this recording, so there's plenty more to come yet. Yeah, we're recommending it, and he didn't even pay us. This isn't one of those paid ads. <laughs> he doesn't even know who we are. He doesn't even know who we are. <laughs> yet. So if you talk to him, tell him uh, I'd buy that for a dollar, say you. All right, well, Jeremy, now tell us what we are going out on. We're going out on Always, which is side B, track six. And this was penned by Irving Berlin. Oh, wow. Major American songwriter. Yeah. One of the all-time greats, maybe the all-time great lyricist. And Are you just going to stand there and pretend like Fred Durst doesn't exist? (laughs) That doesn't sound like Jeremy. Jeremy's usually quick to... uh... Sing the praises of Fred Durst. Yeah, that's a good point. That's we'll the... say one of the... <laughs> that's why you hesitated. <laughs> yeah, this is like one of those breezing situations where... 
We'll change it to one of the best. There you go. Good save. Thank you. And yeah, I picked this one because similar to our last song, it breaks out of the formula a little bit. It's still mostly, you know, the ink spots, but it's uh, it's got a little more depth, this one, I'd say. So we'll leave you on that. Fantastic. If you like what you've heard today on this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar, be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can get more episodes and all kinds of cool bonus content over at patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. Of course, if you don't have any funds, you can also do us a big favor by leaving us a review. goes a long way to getting more listeners our way. So thanks again. This has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. And I'm Sean Hartman. Always. 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 I'll be loving you always. With a love that's true always When the things you've planned Need a helping hand I will understand Always, always Day may not be fair always that's when I'll be there always not for just an hour not for just a day not for just a year but always